Well, good morning again. Uh, like I said before, it is great to see you. And you know, um, what is it? This Tuesday is voting day, right? We've been seeing all these ads. I'm done with those ads, by the way. Those can go away. But uh, the thing I, should, I think they should put on the ballot uh, is whether we should keep or leave day- daylight savings time. And just like, just go all, I got, I don't know if I've ever gotten clapped for anything on stage before at this church and I got clapped for that. So, uh, yeah, that would be one of the things. It's like, if it's, it's like, okay, but I'm like, now it's, you know, I'm fine with it staying lighter later in the day, I guess. I don't know. But one of those things. So I hope your day is off to a good start. Maybe if you have kids like us, they woke up just as early as they normally do or earlier. So that added a nice little curveball to the week. But um, yeah, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Judges. And if you've never studied the book of Judges, you you might be surprised at some of the things we've been talking about, right? I've gotten, especially over the last couple weeks, if you've missed them, uh, go back. You can watch them on YouTube. You can listen to them wherever you get your podcast. But both weeks, I had people come to me or I heard other people say, uh, I can't believe that's in the Bible, right? I didn't know that story was there. Or that's only the, maybe the second or first time they've ever heard anybody preach on that topic. And so Judges isn't the place where we typically go when we want an easy sermon or we have just something we want to talk about or it's something that people jump at. I had a friend who when he saw we were doing Judges, he just goes, man, you are brave to dive into Judges. And so the reason we wanted to was because we want to know what to do with these difficult stories. Sometimes Judges is a place where people who don't know Jesus, who have problems with the Bible, they'll look at this, these stories and go, why are they in there? Why is God doing this? Why is this the case? How is this a good God? And so when you get into those conversations with people, you have to know what to do with that. You have to know how to navigate those things. And so we wanted to dive in and kind of look at some of these more difficult stories and to understand why they're there what they teach us. Um, And we want to be able to learn and grow from all of Scripture and not just pick and choose. And so today, we're going to cover a little bit more of a story you might have heard before. So we're going to talk about Gideon today. Um, Gideon is a famous biblical character in some respects. We'll get to some aspects of the story that maybe you've heard before, Um, but there might be some aspects to his story that we talk about today that you haven't heard before. And so we're going to cover Judges 6 through 8 today, okay? So we're going to go through a lot of scripture. We're not going to read every single verse, but we're going to make our way through today. And I would encourage you, we're we're going to skip big chunks. So if you'd like to, I would encourage you this week or sometime, go back and just read back through these three chapters and pick up the pieces um, that we don't actually focus on. So we're going to dive into Judges uh, chapters 6 through 8 and talk about Gideon today. So we're going to start in in chapter 6 in verses 1 and 2. It says this, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites, Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. All right, let me pause for just a second and just help us remember where we're at. We've seen this cycle over and over again, right? There's, there's a judge that comes along that God uses that judge to take the Israelites out of oppression from people, and then that judge passes away, and then they turn and do the wrong thing again. So that's why that first phrase there, right? The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Deborah had passed away. They decide to turn. They decide to worship idols. They decide to do evil things. And when that happens, there are consequences. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When we make poor decisions and we don't follow God's plan for our lives, there's consequences to that. And so their consequences were they would go and they would be taken over by these other nations that were around them because they were worshiping the same idols and they were doing things that weren't right. And so some people may look at this and go, why is God doing that? Why is he allowing them to be taken over? And we talked last week that Deborah understood 
Barak understood, like, this was not the way it was supposed to be. If they would continue to follow what God's plan was for them, this wouldn't happen. But because they continue to turn from him, they find themselves in this place. So we get back to kind of ground zero, square one, and we've got the Israelites doing evil again. So in verses 3 and 4, it says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and other and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far as Gaza. And they left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattles, and cattle and donkeys. Verses 5 and 6. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived in droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And if you, if, again, if you missed the last couple of weeks, what we saw was the, these occupations of other people are kind of getting worse and worse. Like if we go back a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like there was just a relationship where with Ehud, they would just, you know, they give their tribute to the king and that would kind of keep them, keep Eglon literally fat and happy, right? He was just kind of sitting on the throne and all good. And then they would just kind of go forward. And then uh, last week with Cicero, we see that he was a little bit worse and he didn't treat the people well, but it wasn't quite this bad. Well, it just kind of progressively gets worse and worse to the point where the Israelites are starving. They have to go hide. They have to prepare their food in secret because they're worried that somebody's going to come and take it from them. And so this is the worst it's ever been. And in the other couple of uh, stories we talked about, it was kind of decades, usually 20-ish years before the Israelites cry out to God. This time it only takes them seven, which is still kind of a long time to be under occupation and finally cry out to God, but it, it cuts the time in half. And so this is pretty bad. And so they finally react and say, we need to call out to God. Verses 7 and 8 says, When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. Verses 9 and 10. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites, who in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Now this is interesting because in the other cases when this happened before, the Israelites cry out and God is pretty quick to give them a judge and kind of fix things. He, he gets plans in motion and keeps things going. This time he sends a prophet. We don't know the prophet's name, but he sends a prophet and the prophet has a message. And the message is exactly what I just said. You've done this to yourself. You continue to do the thing I ask you not to do. And it, because of that, you are in this place. And, and the prophet says from God, like God has brought you out of Egypt. They had seen all these amazing things that God had done, and they still continue on the wrong path. Maybe you've seen this happen. Uh, I know I've experienced it. I've been the person who's done it. But you're in a situation, whether it's a teammate or a classmate or maybe someone at work or maybe one of your kids, and you, you, there's a situation where they do something wrong. Someone does something wrong or you do something wrong. And someone comes and says to you or to the other person, hey, that's not the way we should do it. You should do it this way, right? And yet that person goes back and does it the same way over again. And so it kind of gets a little more heated, right? No, remember, we talked about this. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it this way. And then they still do it the same way, right? And then so the person in charge is then saying, hey, are you listening, right? Do you hear what I'm saying to you? This is why we don't do that. This is, why, this is where it leads. This is where it's going. And so there's that progressive. When someone does something the wrong way over and over again, or you do something the wrong way over and over again, there's that sense of agitation that happens. That's what's happening with God. He's going, I, I, I've told you this. I've showed you this. We've been over this. 
And so before he saves them this time, he goes, listen, you need to remember what I'm telling you. Think about what I've showed you. Think about what you know to be true. And, and in this story with Gideon, he, he kind of sets on a path to do things a little bit differently this time in order to move the Israelites to where they need to be. And why is that? It's because Israel needed a reminder before they needed a hero. They had to hear the message. They had to not just cry out because they were in trouble, but they needed to, to understand that what God was doing and how he was going to work and what he called them to. And this is why. Because regret and repentance are not the same thing. The Israelites would get to a place where they would go, uh, we regret all these decisions we're making. We need God to help. But they keep doing it over and over and over again. They regret the consequences of what they've done, but they're not actually repenting and moving from what they're doing. That's what repentance is. When you turn and you move away from the thing you did. They're not doing that. They're just saying we don't like the consequences. And so when those consequences come, they regret what the, the decision they made. And God is trying to move them from a place where they are not just regretting the bad decisions they're making, but they are willing to repent and change and move forward from where they are. So moving ahead to verses 11 and 12, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Aphra, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the, from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, if you're reading carefully, you see the irony in this verse. He's hiding, threshing his wheat, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. He's hiding in a wine press so that the Midianites don't come and get him. Right Now, this is understandable. We just read what the Midianites did. This isn't something that's like necessarily we look at Gideon and go, what a, what a wimp, right? He's just hiding. But he is kind of like trying to make sure the bullies don't take his lunch money, okay? And he's making sure that he's not out in the open where this is going to turn bad for him. And the angel of the Lord shows up. This is also very interesting, just kind of a side conversation. This may literally have been the presence of Jesus. When we see something like the angel of the Lord... And as we see this conversation go back and forth, we're going to see it's kind of that they say he's an angel, but then there's also the conversation that maybe he just treats him as Lord. And so it would have been the spiritual representation of Jesus before Jesus came to earth. And so this is a very interesting interaction with Gideon. Going to verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say... The Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Very telling conversation with Gideon. He sees the circumstances and goes, clearly God's not with us. And we've probably been there, right? Circumstances don't go the way we want, or life is really hard and things keep happening and they keep snowballing. And we look at that and go, where's God, right? What's he doing? And Gideon even says, remember all those miracles? Like, why isn't God showing up? So we know that there's a disconnect between what Gideon understands and what the Lord is telling them. He's not realizing that the way that they are living, the decisions they've made, the gods they worship is causing them to end up in this space. But going on in verses 14 and 15, it says, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. 
So Gideon gets this message. Lord says, I'm going to send you. And he says, I am the weakest person in the weakest clan. Like he's literally saying, I am the last person you want to do this. But we've seen through this whole story, right? God chooses another unlikely hero. We looked at Ehud two weeks ago. He's got a crushed right hand or right hand that doesn't work. So everybody underestimates him because he's using his left hand. Last week, we look at Deborah, the only female judge in a world that even more so was dominated by men. And God uses Deborah. And so God shows up and says, I'm going to use you, Gideon. And so they move on. We're going to skip a little chunk. They move on and God gives Gideon uh, his first mission. And so we're going to jump ahead to Judges uh, 6, 25 and 26. Verse 25 says this, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Verse 26, Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar using the fuel, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. And so this is literally his dad's altar to Baal. Baal was the god they were worshiping. So he goes, he says, tear that down, tear down the Asherah pole, set up an, set up a altar to me, sacrifice the bull, and use the Asherah pole, Asherah pole to fuel the fire. As I was studying for this, there's a resource we've been using from Tim, Tim Keller, and he said it this way. I thought it was really, nice, really good. He said, before they could throw off the enemies around them, the Midianites, they have to throw off the enemies among them, the idols. Because before God, we, we can just ask God, or before we ask God to just fix all our problems, we have to be willing to kind of adjust what's going on internally. And I, I thought about it this way, right? It's complete arrogance to ask God to remove our problems when we are unwilling to remove our idols. I'll give you an example of this, right? If you knew someone that was wanting to quit drinking, they realized it was an unhealthy habit in their life, life and so they decided that was something they wanted to do away with completely. So if you're sitting down, you're having conversation with them, and they're telling you all about this, my next question would be, so did you get rid of all the alcohol in your house, right? And if they look back at me or they look back at you and they say, no, I'm just going to leave it there, you would say that's probably not the wisest decision, right? Let's just simplify it even more. Let's just say you want to get rid of all sugar, right? You bought a box of donuts yesterday. Now today you want to get rid of sugar. So you decide you're going to get rid of sugar. And I say, well, what are you going to do with those donuts? You could give them to me, right? But you say, well, I say, what are you going to do with the donuts? You're just, I'm just going to leave them there on the counter. Now, this is kind of a silly example, but you get what I'm saying. If we don't remove the thing that's going to cause us to stumble, there's not much hope that growth is going to happen. And when we go to God and we just say, God, would you help me? God, would you do this? God, would you do that? But we aren't willing to look internally and say, what are the things I'm allowing to hinder my relationship with God? Then we're not doing our side of the, of the work. And we want God to just show up, much like the Israelites did, hey, save me, hey, save me, hey, save me. I regret the impact of my decision, but I don't want to change. But we have to do the internal work to get to the place we want to get, for God to be able to do the work in our lives we want to see, because we can't hold on to idols and worship him at the same time. And so God says, get rid of those idols, take it down, and get rid of it. And so there's three steps I want to take. Remember, God is setting Israel up, 
through the story of Gideon to hopefully turn a corner. And I think there are three steps that need to happen, and we can learn from these three steps. The first step is simply remove the idols. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It is easy for us to go, I'm never going to worship at an Asherah pole, right? That's just not going to happen. I understand that. But the way I just said earlier, you you just have to think through it this way. What are the things in my life that are hindering my relationship with God? So when we decide we're going to make a change, what are the things that get in our way? What are the things that we're unwilling to let go that God is asking us to get out of the way? We have to be willing to do that if we're going to be able to follow him and not get stuck in this cycle that the Israelites are on, asking for help, regretting the decisions, but not actually repenting of our actions. By the way, this move by Gideon got him in a lot of trouble. They wanted to come after him. This was a move that was not popular. Nobody was around cheering Gideon on going, yeah, take it down, take it down. Like, we don't want to worship this thing anymore. No, like this was, this was a bold move. And so he sets himself on a trajectory. He's doing well. This is going the way it's supposed to go. We're going to move now uh, to chapter 7 and start in verse 1. It says, so, so Jeroboam, which is Gideon, so he gets a new name after he tears down the altar to Baal. And his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. This is where I can't say names anymore. This, sorry. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. This is a very important verse in the story. So it says, You have too many men. If I let you fight the Midianites this way, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Okay, keep going, verse 3. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. So we start the day with 32,000. And God says, you've got too many. Anyone who's afraid can leave. 22,000 leave. Now, even though that's like two-thirds of the group, there, there's some, some like part of me that would be like, okay, at least I have the bravest ones. Like they, were, they had the out, they could go home, the, all the ones that were scared left. So now I have literally the 10,000 best men who are the bravest among them. Like all right, if I'm in this case now, I'm like, all right, this is, I can work with this. I still have a lot of guys, they're the bravest ones. Maybe we can move forward with that. But verse four, we keep going. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. Verse 5. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, Divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Verse 6. Only 300 of the men drank with their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths to the stream. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns and all the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with them. Now, this gets way more crazy, right? So you're down to 10,000 and God gives them this instructions. Here's how they're going to drink water. I don't know what Gideon's thought was. Like, I don't know any history of, like, this is what they typically did. This is what they didn't do, why they did it. There's not a lot of understanding on why this would be a strategic move. 
But I don't know if I was Gideon when, when God just says, you're just going to split them into two groups who drink water. I probably wouldn't have thought there would be only 300 in this group and 9,700 in this one. But all of a sudden, he's down to 300. This is much different than now you've got maybe the bravest 300, but still, down from 32,000, this is a big deal. We're going to jump ahead uh, to verses 17 and 18. Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too. All around the entire camp they shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So fast forwarding, Gideon takes his 300 men. He surrounds the Midianite camp and this is the plan. He's going to blow his trumpet and they're going to break the pots and then everybody else is going to do the same. This is how God was going to help them win this battle. Verse 19. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Verse 20. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke the jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands. And they all shouted a sword for the Lord and an end for Gideon. Verse 21. Each man stood at his position around the camp, and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. Verse 22, when the 300 Israelites blew the ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far as Beth Shtah near Zerah, and to the border of Abel Mahola near Tabith. So you've got 300 men, they surround the camp. Now, now this is strategic, okay? And we don't know if this was God exactly giving Gideon the time or if Gideon's showing up and doing it at this point. But this is, think about the timing. It said it was just after midnight. So here's what would happen, right? They would be in three groups of people and they would do three different times of watch. This was right after the changing of the guard. So you've got the, the Midianite army in three groups. One group has just taken their place. So they're just starting their shift. They're in place to make sure they can watch the rest of the camp and be on lookout. You've got a third of them that just got off of their shift and they're headed back to their tent. You've got another third that is sleeping, okay? So when the Israelite army blows the horns, breaks the pots, it wakes up the group that's sleeping. Now, when the group wakes up that's sleeping and they hop out of bed, they think they're at war because they hear all the, all the commotion. They wonder what's going on, but they're just waking up. They jump out of their tent with their sword or whatever they've got. And what do they see but warriors walking back towards them to the tents? That's the shift that just got off. They're also tired, but they're coming out. So those two groups probably engage in battle first. They start fighting each other. Well, then the group that just got onto their shift to be on the watch, they hear all the fighting in the te- in, inside the camp, and they see all the people outside the camp, and they assume that they've already been infiltrated, so they come in and join the fight inside the camp. All of this happening in the middle of the night. So this is how that works. It's, it's very strategic, and it's, it, it is a miracle. Like It's a miracle that it worked, right? But there's some strategy to this where it just causes great confusion and, and Gideon and his 300 men that were faithful to what God taught them are able to win this fight. And why does God do this? Why does God walk through and take Gideon down from 32,000? Well, remember what we read in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 2. He says, if I let you fight this fight the way that you are and you win, the Israelites are going to boast that they want it themselves. And so here's what God wanted them to know, right? If we think, if the Israelites thought that they could save themselves 
They would never depend on someone else, or we would never depend on someone else. This was the problem. Every time they would get saved by God, he would, he would uh, deliver them from their oppressors. They would turn around and go, you know what? We can worship who we want. We can make the decisions we want. God wanted them to see that all of their success, and if we go through the Old Testament, we start and just track through, right? The reason Israel still exists to this moment in time is all because of God's hand on them. He's the one who keeps showing up. He's the one who delivered them out of slavery. He's the one who delivers them from their oppressors. And he wants them to see that they need to depend on him. And so step one was removing the idols, but step two is this. Place your dependence on the only true God. When we think about this, it can be very easy for us to, it can be very easy for me to just go, I have what I need to be successful. And in fact, right, even if you don't believe in God or whatever, like you can look at life and you might say, you have the gifts, the abilities, you are equipped well enough to complete your bucket list in life. You might be. You might be able to, be, to get by. You might be charismatic. You might be able to do the things that you need to do. And at the end of the day, you're going to be able to look back at life and say, I accomplished what I came to accomplish. But here's what I know is true, right? People aren't remembered on their deathbed for what they did, but for who they loved. And the people that are going to stand around are going to go, yeah, there were some, maybe some things that are really good. And maybe if you're really good at something and you're in like the Hall of Fame or you're doing something. But most of us aren't in that camp, right? Most of us are going to look or are going to get to a funeral or you're going to get to the day where you pass. And you're, it's going to be the people around you that say, this person loved me so much. And you're going to have that conversation. And that's what people are going to rally around. That's what people are going to remember. They're not going to remember us being good at our job. They're not going to remember that. They're not going to remember the talents that we had necessarily. And so when we look at this and we go, we need to place our dependence on God, it's getting ourselves out of the way and saying, I'm not just going to depend on me. I'm not just going to focus just on me, but that I'm going to depend on the God that I know to be true. And that's what God wanted the Israelites to see. It's what he was using Gideon to show. And so for us, people that If you're a follower of Jesus, we would say that we want to place our dependence in Jesus and not simply be focused on us doing what we need to do or gaining what we need to gain. So we're going to go on to the the last section of our story. We're going to go to Judges chapter 8. We're going to start in verses 4 and 5. It says, Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men, and though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Succoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, Please give my warriors some food. They are very tired. I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Verse 6. But the officials of Succoth replied, Catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your army. So traveling the same 300 men, they're trying to finish the job. They're exhausted. So they come to the town and they say, and Gideon says, will you please help us? And their response is, you get the job done, then we'll help you. Which is a little bit of a jerk move, right? Like you could help your fellow man, you know, like help the person that's trying to save you. But at the same time, you think about their position. It's only 300 people. That's a lot to feed, right? And we already know that the times for the Israelites are terrible. They, they don't have a lot of food. So maybe they're thinking, Like, if you guys go and finish the job, like, yeah, sure, then we know we're going to be in good shape after you finish the job. But if we feed you and then you go fail, 
not only did you fail and we're out of that food, but the enemy, the Midianites are going to be mad at us for helping you, and they're going to come take the rest of what we had minus what we already gave to you. So I get it. They're in a bad spot. It's a difficult decision to make, but they make this decision. Well, this makes Gideon pretty upset. Verse 7 of chapter 8 says this. So Gideon said, After the Lord gives me victory over Ziba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. Gideon's got a, like a mean streak. Like all of a sudden, it's like, I'm coming for you. Very, it, it's strange to me. It's strange to me that he would win this battle, battle, right? We could even do air quotes on that. Like they didn't, they didn't even lift a sword. They didn't take one casualty. They win this and he gets to this point where he sees this town and yes, they make a bad decision. They're a little bit of a jerk to him. But his response is, I'm going to physically hurt you because of what you did when I do get back here. So fast forward to verse 15. They actually do finish the job. Gideon then returned to Succoth and said to the leaders, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me, saying, Catch these guys first, and then we will feed your exhausted army. Verses 16 and 17. Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel, and, at, and killed all the men in the town. This was another town where he came to and got kind of the same message, and so he vowed that he would tear down their tower, and he also then kills all the men in the town. Big change of events. Gideon, remember Gideon at the very beginning of the story? I am the least among my tribe. Why do you want me to do this job? He wins one battle with 300 men, and all of a sudden he can just dish out cat, corporal punishment. Skip ahead to verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. They want him to actually be king because he finished the job. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, you, for you have rescued us from Midian. Verses 23 and 24. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. And for a minute here, it's like, okay, this is good. He actually recognizes what's true. This is why Israelite didn't have a king. They had judges, but God was supposed to be the ruler, right? That was why they didn't have a king. He says, nope, I'm not going to do it. God will rule over you. But he says, however, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you, co- you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. So he says, you know what? I don't want to rule over you but I'll take your money, right? I'll get rich off of you. That's fine. I'll say the right thing, but I'm not going to do the right thing. And of course the people say, okay, sure, we'll give you our money. Like, this is fine. We'll give it to you. So and then verse 27, we'll skip ahead a little bit more. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Afra, his hometown. But soon the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Uh, this is talking about an, an Afra, or sorry, a uh, ephod. Ephod, Afra, same verse, that's difficult. It was something that the priests would wear. And it was something only reserved for priests to wear. And so Gideon says, no, I won't be king, but I will take your money, and then I'm going to make this idol. And I'm going to almost kind of take on some of the, like, looking of a priest, put it in my hometown, and it says people started to worship it. Again, what he did before was he tore down the altar to Baal and built an altar to God. Now he builds an altar to him. 
Moving ahead to get to kind of the end of Gideon's life, we'll go to verses, verses 33 through 35. It says, As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Bareth their God. They forgot the Lord their God, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Verse 35, Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. You know, we... We don't get this perspective of Gideon a lot, right? Here's the two stories you hear a lot from Gideon. You hear about the fleeces that he puts out to kind of test God and see what God's message is. And then we get the battle. And we all kind of go, wow, look at the faithfulness. Like we go through the whole thing, 32,000 down to 300, and we look at it. And I'm not trying to just bash on Gideon, but he takes a hard turn here in what he, the way that he leads And he ends up at the end of his life, right? It says, even after all this good stuff, like he did a lot of good. They forget completely about Gideon. And even though he showed up and tore down the altar to Baal, they go, the Israelites go right back and start to worship Baal again. Here's what I think happened to Gideon, right? God-given success or grace can become man-made fame. Like, anytime God shows up in our lives, even the giftings that he gives us, the opportunities he gives us, the platform he gives us, the roles he gives us, that's all grace. God doesn't need to give us anything. And so God shows up in Gideon's life, gives him this uh, incredible amount of grace, gives him the, the army, gives him the opportunity, gives him the platform, and automatically, as soon as he won that battle, he, became, he, he got consumed by his desire to be famous or to be the one who's in charge or to be the one who is important. And we can do the same thing. Now, it might not lead to fame like we think of fame, but we can use God-given success, the blessings that God gives us, to put ourselves at the center of attention. Remember, chapter 7, verse 2, if I let your army stay the same size, the Israelites will boast that they have won. God could say the same thing about our lives, right? If I let you Handle this the way that you think you want to handle it, the way you think it should be done. You will boast to me about how great you are. This is step three in our process. Don't crown yourself for the ways God shows up in your life. Don't crown yourself, and I I can't crown myself for the ways God shows up in my life. I'll give you just a couple of examples of this, right? Let's go real small. Let's say, you know, everybody's sick right now. Sickness is just kind of floating around, right? Let's just say one night you're sitting at home and you start to feel that cold coming on, right? You just get a little sniffly or you get like congested or whatever. You got a big day the next day. You've got something you need to do. You got a place you need to be. You don't want them to think you have COVID or something like that, right? And you just, you just stop for a minute and you just go, God, will you please take this cold away? And you go to bed early and you take some vitamin C and you wake up the next day and you feel great, right? And what's your first thought? Good thing I took that vitamin C, Right? Our brain goes to, look what I did. Let me go, go a little bigger circumstance, right? Let's just say you get a job interview. Job interview you've always wanted, you've worked really hard for it, you've wanted it forever, and you're going into it, you're nervous, you want it to happen, and so you pray and pray and pray, God, please help me get this job, right? You go into the job interview, you do great. You, you present yourself well, you have great conversation, you connect well with the person on the other side of the table, and the next day you get the call, you got the job. Where does your brain go? man, I nailed that interview, right? We just go to, what did I do? How was I successful? Our brain doesn't necessarily go to, 
look how God showed up. That's where Gideon got it wrong. That's where he took his story and he could have just kept saying, look what God did, look what God did, look what God did. And instead, he said, look what I did. Let me put myself first. You know, I, I have, I don't know if I've shared this full story before, but I wanted to wrap with um, a story today before we're done. Um, and I think I've maybe told part of this story, but I haven't told the whole thing. The, earlier this week uh, was two years since I've been here at GFC. And so I, it's just exciting for me. It's awesome. I love it. You're gonna, thanks, Clarissa. I got clapped twice today. This is great. So lots of fun. I don't know, I don't know if I've ever told this whole story, but I, I want to tell the story a little bit of how I got to GFC. And so I have to go back to college. Um, I started college in the fall of 2007. And when I started college, I had, a, I had a roommate that was from West Virginia. He was awesome. Um, I really liked him. But he was, uh, he was in one of those weird situations in college where he came in as a freshman, but he had some rollover credits because he had been at Marshall for a little while. And so by the end of the year, he was technically a junior and not a sophomore. Okay? He was one of those weird kids. So he had a bunch of classes that were not the same as me because he was technically ahead of me. So he ended up living with some upperclassmen, and all of my roommates uh, or friends that lived in my hall, they, they had their roommates. They kind of stuck together. So I was stuck. I had to kind of do the freshman thing over again and get a random roommate. Well, my roommate, he was fine. We really didn't, we didn't not get along. We just had zero interest in any of the same things. So we were fine. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem, but I, I, we, weren't, we weren't friends. We didn't hang out. We didn't talk a lot or anything like that. So I find out during my sophomore year that one of my friends is going to drop out. He's going to leave at Thanksgiving, so pretty close to this time of the year. He says, you know what, I'm going to be done at Thanksgiving, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop out. So that, his roommate that was staying and I were friends, and we pretty quickly said to each other, well, I should just probably move in here, right? And he was like, yeah, because he didn't want someone random, and I just wanted to live with someone I knew. So I move into that roommate. With, I move in with that roommate, and um, we stayed roommates for the rest of college. But that room, the the friend that dropped out, the friend that's no longer at the school, he works at different places, and he had worked at Red Robin for a while. Okay, so he actually ends up after I graduate, he ends up being the manager at the Red Robin in Lionville. Becca and I were dating at the time. Maybe we're, we were engaged by this point, and so we both needed jobs. So I called him and just said, "Hey, can you hire us, both of us?" He hired me in the kitchen. That was a terrible decision. I should never work in a kitchen. But we'll get there, right? Uh, he hired Becca as a waitress. She'll tell you she didn't like it. I think she was great at it, but she was like, she doesn't want to be a waitress. But anyway, so we worked there for a while. While I'm there, I meet a guy named Chandel, who also works in the kitchen. Chandel went to Gateway. So Chandel and I get to be friends, and he says, hey, my church, Gateway, which I had heard of Gateway, didn't know it too well. He says, we are hiring a youth ministry intern. Are you interested? And so I say, well, tell me more about this. So we kind of start to have conversations, and I have an interview. Well, a couple of things. I was volunteering at a church for a little while that didn't, there, there was no pay involved. There was no, like, necessarily looking forward to much. Um, so it was kind of a, a no man's land. I, I was enjoying, le- like, leading there, helping out, learning. Um, but it just didn't look like there was going to be much forward momentum there. And I had been interviewing different spots, and the question I would ask was, I understand you're hiring an intern, but is there any hope or plan that maybe in the future this would be a full-time thing? I literally had people just say no to me. They were like, no, we're just looking for someone for three months, and then that's it. And I'm like, well, I, that's not really where I want to go. Gateway was a different conversation. They said, yep, we're not promising you anything, but if this goes well, you do a good job, we get along well, we will hire you full-time. 
they eventually do hire me as an intern. Well, the church I was volunteering at found out I was going to go and be hired somewhere else. And they offered to pay me four times the amount that Gateway was going to, going to pay me. And I said, I, there was just something in me, right? I just felt like I still just need to go to Gateway. So I do. So fast forward about a year, things go well, I get hired full time, and then I run into a six foot two Australian named Tim. He starts showing up at Gateway. We start doing stuff together. Gateway and, and New Holland uh, are doing stuff together, GFC. And so I get to know Tim. Fast forward a little bit further, I decide I need to go plant a church in Pottstown. I'm there for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, I get a call from that six foot two Australian that says, I'm going to work with the fellowship. Are you interested, interested in becoming the lead pastor at GFC? So I can go all the way back to this guy drops out of college years ago and see these dominoes. I mean, I can go back further, right? Choose my college. Where do I choose to go to college? All of these dominoes. Now, there are certain points in that story where I could go, man, I did a great job at Gateway. I built that, and they were happy with me, and they hired me full-time, and I got to hang out with Patrick, so that was awesome, and so all of this stuff, right? I could name it, and I could go, I did a good job, and I went here, and I kept those relationships, and I did a really good job, and I, and I did all the things, right? Or I could go, look at all the dominoes, right? All the way through, and just go, look at what, look how God got me here. And that's a different conversation. That's not something where we just go, look at me. And so here's what I want us to learn from this, right? How do we learn from Gideon? I would ask this question. How do you need to recognize God for the work he's doing in your life today? How do in those moments, even the little ones like you don't get the cold, or the big ones like you do get the interview, how do we look back at that and go, this is God moving and I'm going to honor him and not just focus on me? I don't want to harp on Gideon today but we can't fall into the same place where we start saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I did and remove God from the equation of what he's doing in our life. So this week, when we think about this, when you realize something good that God does, when you realize something that does go your way, when you realize that you went from point A to point B and you have no idea how you got there, right? Acknowledge God and all the work he did in that. And especially when he shows up and when he answers prayer, and when he gets you to the place you want to be, don't forget to say thank you. Don't forget to just pause for a minute. Our tendency is to put ourselves in the middle of that conversation. And what we should do is put God in the middle of that conversation. Let's pray. God, we're, we're thankful for the story of Gideon, and the, the whole point of this conversation is not to just look at how terrible Gideon was and all the mistakes he made, but we want to learn from what he did and how he did it. And God, we ask in those moments where you, you show up in life, where you clearly are the mover and shaker that places us where we need to be, we ask that we would not simply focus on the achievement we made, but that we would remember who you are. And we would stop and we would not think about the, <laughs> just your grace you gave us anyway to be able to do what we can even do. We ask that we would put you in the center of our lives. We would worship you. We wouldn't crown ourselves for that. And we would cause other people to worship you because of it. We thank you for all the ways you are working. And if there's you know people listening, people in the room that are going through a situation, they're like, I need God to show up. We ask that you would you would show up in that situation and, and it would be so clear to them that you put 
them there, that you're the one who got them to that place, and we would stop and we would simply worship you in those moments. In Jesus' name, amen.